Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a return listener, welcome back. We do appreciate you tuning in each week as we bring you the latest nuance in health and fitness. This week is episode 173. This is part two of Dr. Baraki and I's question and answer session from our recent two-day seminar in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at Warhorse Barbell Club. This week's podcast includes a discussion of when to get a coach and why or why not, yoga and lifting, do they mix, uh, training considerations when one limb is injured, and much, much more. Uh, Before we get into the podcast this week, a few announcements. First announcements have to do with philanthropy. First up is the Load Women Fundraiser. Uh, this doubles as a deadlift competition. It runs throughout the entire month of April. It's run by Claire Zai and Alyssa Olenek, both of whom have been on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'll link to their episodes in the description below. Uh, for more information on this, for if you want to donate, if you want to deadlift something heavy or lift something heavy this month and get people to pledge, any sort of involvement, any sort of donation is going to be great. There is a link uh, in the description below. Also, speaking of philanthropy, we still have uh, some Lift for Life shirts available. We teamed up with the Lift for Life group out of St. Louis, Missouri. They help inner city youth get involved in after school uh, sports, specifically weightlifting, uh, which is why they're called Lift for Life. And uh, so we made shirts. All the proceeds go to them. um, And we still have some shirts left over. So you can head over to the website, check that out. And of course, as always, we still have our regular barbell medicine gear available. If you want to rep our brand, you can follow the link in the description below to get your latest barbell medicine swag. Stickers are on the way. They're on the way to me, and then they'll be on the way to the distribution center. And then, you know, they'll be available for sale uh, and or inclusion in your order. Uh, More details to come on that, so keep your eyes peeled on our website. And last but not least, the Barbell Medicine app is now live in the Apple App Store. Uh, for Android users, people who don't use smartphones, if you if you guys are out there and listen to a podcast, uh, let me know how that works. But uh, we are working on those, and I promise you when they are available, we will announce them. However, the app is cool. Uh, if you're looking for a way to log your workouts, track PRs, volume, body composition, etc., this app is for you. The link is in the description below. It's free. Uh, all of your barbell medicine templates will automatically be ready to go when you log in, when you register. App can also be used with your own personal non-barbell medicine workouts too. Uh, and I believe all of our latest templates are in there. So the Power Building 3 template, the Low Fatigue Strength templates, etc. So if you need an app to log your training, you want to have your latest barbell medicine template or coaching or programming or whatever on your phone, and you have an iPhone, this one's for you. Okay, that's enough. Let's get into this week's podcast. Next question. Again, can you imagine, though, like the lights dim down? And... This is really a thing in your head. I, I just always wanted to be on that show. And then I was like, who would I call? I was like a kid. I was like, I call my dad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, when does one need a coach? Ooh, this is good. Do you want to give a flippant answer or you want to give a real answer? You, you can start. Oh, okay. Well, because you could, the flippant answer would be like, never or always, and then just... Or uh, whenever you want. Yeah, or whenever you want. Right, <laughs> yeah. And just move on. Um, no, I, I think coaching can be very, very useful, uh, and this is going to trigger the YouTubes, okay. by the way. Because I think... I'm ready. Sure. I think it's going to help with the learning curve. Oh. <laughs> um, we have an argument about like what does it mean to have a steep learning curve like is that bad or good and I think it's good because if it's steeper that means you accumulate more knowledge faster and then he's like that's not how anybody else uses the phrase sure yeah no I get it but people also say like have your cake and eat it too and that's wrong so it's like eat your cake and have it too that's anyway uh, that's for the next <laughs> podcast 
I think a coach can be useful if you are seeking guidance in an area where you don't have much experience or expertise. Uh, and I also think a coach can be useful at providing a, a more objective outsider's opinion on management of like programming and or nutrition and or other sort of lifestyle changes. Uh, particularly, again, if they're an expert in that field and you don't happen to be one, or even if you do happen to be one, if you don't want to uh, uh, or don't have the current capacity to be objective about that. So, for example, I've been a coach now well, over 10 years, uh, probably closer to 15 now, and I've had a coach for the last 10 years, the same coach for the last 10 years, Mike Tuscher. It's actually funny, he posted on his Instagram, he's like, ah, Somebody had asked him a question like, how has your programming changed over the last you know, 10 years? He's like, I wish I could have worked, talked to one of my clients from 10 years ago and like, show them the differences. And I was like, Jordan has entered the chat. <laughs> so I like, sent him a screenshot over the very first program and, uh, that he ever sent me. And it was kind of interesting how that's changed iteratively. But the, uh, the benefits to having a coach is that they can provide uh, expertise where you don't have it uh, and then kind of make your learning process or, or a little happen a little faster rather than you doing it by trial and error and not necessarily know like which way to go. Um, it's not that you don't have any input into this, but it's that they kind of keep the constraints, keep the bumpers like your bowling or whatever, um, somewhat narrow so that you don't go way far off the reservation. So I like it from that, uh, from an expertise sort of standpoint. And then also if you need somebody to be more objective than you would otherwise be or currently have time to be, can just take something off your plate so that's it for me. I, that's why I like having a coach is because I don't want to like analyze every single facet of my program because one of two things are going to happen. Either one, I'm going to like perseverate over every single detail and then come up with some answer that I don't really know uh, what to do next and I'm kind of paralyzed with all this data or I'm not going to use any data and I'm just going to wing it. And, you know, I'm not going to do something totally stupid because I just wouldn't train that way. Uh, but the idea that that would work well for me over the long term is probably uh, it's pretty unlikely. So, yeah, I think if you need some expertise and you need, or you need some uh, outside assistance, I think having a coach is, is useful. Yeah. Uh, as far as, to be strict with the question, when does one need a coach, then yes, the flippant answer is never. You don't absolutely need one. There's a ton that can be done on your own, mm -hmm. but there will probably be a lot more, as far as this trial and error process goes, probably be a lot more error that way. Um, uh, compared to if you're working with somebody who has more experience, more expertise, and can take this more uh, objective look at your programming. I've kind of been on and off getting some guidance over the course of my training career. Partially, I've had Jordan send me some programs over the years. I think the last time was probably with that ramp up to nationals in, in 2018. Um, and then I was like, I'm going to go by myself for a little while. And I trained for a Don't while go. by myself again. And then sometimes I'll have some ache or pain flare up. It's like, damn, elbows are acting up again. And I'll talk to our rehab guys. Or um, a little over a year and a half ago, I was having some, some back symptoms and I was like kind of annoyed with what was going on. So I went back to our rehab guys and I talked with Charlie. And I was like, you're doing a bunch of cool bodybuilding bro stuff. Be all right with trying something like that for a short period of time. So we did a little of that for a little while. And then that program kind of iteratively morphed into this thing that, like I said, I've been doing more or less continuously ever since then. And once it morphed into that, I was like, I'm good to be back, on, back by myself for a while now because I've just been doing the same week for a long time. Uh, but I just got, again, a little, a little taste of an outside perspective because I'm like, I'm not really a bodybuilder. He's more into the, the bodybuilding stuff. And so he threw together some stuff. I was like, this is fun for a short period of time and then evolved back into more specific training that I'm into now. So I, I do think that um, if you feel like you are not sure what to do next, that's one situation. Um, 
or if you're interested in something different, <laughs> that can be another situation where you can just get somebody else's perspective, all right? Because your creativity may run out. You may not know, you know sure. how else you can structure things or, or try something. So I think that there's a bunch of places that a coach can come in handy, but I don't think, I, I wouldn't pitch it as like everybody absolutely must have a coach at all times watching every rep of every set. No. Unnecessary. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I think I would prefer if everybody was able to like self-manage yeah. and do everything on their own uh, and, and get great outcomes. And I think a lot of people can, but some people are gonna need a little bit extra help or want a little bit extra help, but that's fine too. Yep, cool. Will yoga improve lifting performance? <laughs> I mean, there's like some lifts in yoga, right? Like partner yoga, you ever done that? I've never done any yoga. You never done any yoga? No. Do you know how many like dates I've been on for yoga? Uh, I, can, I can guess. Yeah, it's non-zero. The point is, <laughs> uh, invariably, any type of yoga for me turns into hot yoga, and that's not like, that, like just because I sweat a lot. And then like also like in those positions, I'm, I'm sweaty. And uh, it, it's not a good vibe afterwards. Mm. I'm not like, oh, do you want to go get a smoothie? I'm like, no, why would I get that? Like, I just want to eat a regular meal. And then also you just maybe do something I hate, so this is terrible. Um, yeah, Instaghost. No, the, will yoga improve lifting performance? I can think of, you know, if you're very untrained, really any sort of physical activity is likely to improve some uh, measurable performance, right? So if you're measuring strength on like, leg extensions or whatever, or maybe like a leg press, you were previously sedentary and you do some yoga, I could see you know, a study finding that that increases it. The point isn't that yoga doesn't improve performance or any type of resistance training you know, uh, a proxy of success. It's just that it doesn't do it as good as lifting. And you have a <laughs> finite amount of time to train. And so it's like, all right, so if we look at this from a performance standpoint and then a health standpoint, or you can prioritize health first, however you want to shake this, shake this out, it's like, where does yoga, how does yoga fall into this? So from a performance standpoint, it's like, is this going to help my resistance training more than other resistance training? No. Is it going to help my resistance training more than other types of physical activity like aerobic training or conditioning work? No. Okay, so when is, how is it going to help my resistance training? It's like, it's probably not gonna benefit it that much uh, directly, but if you have all the extra time in the world and you really like yoga, like knock yourself out. No one's saying it's gonna hurt you. I don't think that's gonna be the case unless it's like hot yoga and you're doing a ton of it. And yeah, that sort of additional heat related stress is you know, likely gonna cause you some extra fatigue that you're gonna have to deal with. From a health perspective, people are like, what's better, yoga or lifting? I'm like, lifting, easy, not even close. Not even close, yoga folk, it's not even close. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that I think that yoga is bad, it's just that when you th look at all of the benefits of resistance training has on every system of the body, and you compare those to the magnitude of effects of yoga, you don't, it doesn't even stand a chance. It doesn't even stand a chance, all right? In addition, again, you don't have to be a hot, sweaty mess after any type of, yeah, I guess with exercise. You know what's weird, I don't really- You trained in my garage, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so can you think of a time uh, where you would advise somebody to go to yoga uh, for as part of their training pro uh, program? Not unless that's just what they wanted to do. I mean, I think yeah. I, I don't think that there is anything specific enough about yoga as it relates to lifting performance that, as Jordan was saying, that doing yoga would provide a greater magnitude of benefit compared to lifting more. Even just not doing anything else. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, but if I you mean, really, I, if you I really get like in, it. Yeah, exactly. And, and a good example is I still get in the pool and swim once a week. Yeah. And I do not go and swim once a week 
under the impression that it is going to help my lifting performance. Yeah, right? I, I ride dirt bikes and I don't think it's gonna help my lifting. In fact, it may it's, hurt. It is substantially hurt your lifting <laughs> performance. <laughs> but I do it because I like it. Yeah. And it's okay to have physical activities that you regularly participate in that don't improve your lifting. Yeah. I think people will try to make the argument like, well, if you have like mobility restrictions and you do yoga, it's gonna improve these mobility restrictions. Thing is, just like strength is mobility or stretching and flexibility, that's all specific. Specific to the joint angles, the joint velocity, the muscle lengths, the positions that you're in. So sure, if your yoga looks a lot like holding the bottom of a squat, holding the bottom of a bench press, deadlift startup set up uh, position, sumo deadlift position, then yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that those exist. No, but I'm just saying, like maybe that's like power yoga. And literally, it's power lifting yoga. Did we just did we just come up with an idea? That's trademark, guys. Don't take that. From me. <laughs> um, but no, but but if if so, if the if the sort of exposure to different ranges of motion uh, closely resemble that of the resistance training exercises that you care about, then sure, I could see some benefit there if there was maybe a limitation yeah. uh, before. But again, not as much as just doing the resistance training, which is very specific to that range of motion yeah. and movement velocity and muscle length. But your whole life doesn't have to be lifting. If you like doing yoga, go do yoga. I would, in fact, I would advise against your whole life being lifting. Strongly. Yeah, strongly advise <laughs> against that. Okay. Last we few have, questions. We have number nine? Yeah. Okay. How long do you give lifestyle interventions to work? Uh, for example, obesity-related diseases before deciding medical or surgical intervention will likely be needed. Uh, how or when should non-medically trained fitness professionals discuss weight loss medications with their clients? Oh, this is good. This is a good one. Yeah. You included yoga and this one? <laughs> uh, so I think this is really important. So I'll start with the second question, like how or when should non-medically trained fitness professionals discuss weight loss medications with their clients? I think this, we need to destigmatize this. We need to normalize this stuff ASAP immediately now. Uh, so if you're discussing weight loss with somebody and they want you to somehow help them in this process, I think giving them sort of uh, setting the expectation early on where it's like, hey, we have a lot of different options in order to tackle this appetite dysregulation or uh, uh, sort, of, sort of issue. So, and that includes lifestyle changes with relation to the diet, physical activity, sleep, food environment, eating environment, it's great. We also, there are also medications potentially available and there are also surgery available. And it just really depends what you need in order to fix that issue. And those issues are not necessarily your fault, all right? But as far as dealing with them, if you're you know, trying to make some headway there, there, there are available options to you. So I think starting that from the jump, normalizing it, that would all, all be useful. Um, as far as the first question, when do we uh, sort of, uh, it's not necessarily give up on lifestyle, but start adding on to that, intensifying the intervention or increasing uh, the level of care. It really depends on uh, the individual's response and the adherence sort of issue. So for example, if I have somebody who is trying their best uh, following the diet, uh, dietary intervention, the physical uh, activity interventions, uh, so I think adherence is pretty high, uh, but they're not getting results I'm probably not gonna give them more than three, four months before I really even address this or recommend some sort of actionable uh, uh, thing where they would either go see a doctor or ask their doctor about it, um, for example. Uh, if the adherence tends to be the issue, meaning that somebody, uh, we have these dietary uh, pillars, the five dietary pillars that we wanna hit, we have these physical activity goals that we wanna hit, and we're not really approaching getting anywhere close to that, 
I don't necessarily know that we've tried all that we can in the lifestyle, uh, uh, you know, interventions uh, sort of uh, from a lifestyle intervention standpoint. Rather, I think there are other issues that we have not yet addressed, like what are the barriers to getting them to be adherent to this? And I'd probably circle the wagons and go back there rather than intensify uh, treatment. That said, as far as like when or is it appropriate to recommend people to uh, see a doctor about the current FDA approved medications for weight loss or for surgery, those, are, those guidelines are published. So it's if somebody's got a BMI of greater than 27 um, and, and or one um, uh, adiposity-based chronic disease, that person is recommended to be evaluated for weight loss medications if they're not doing well or good enough with the lifestyle stuff. And then it's either either a BMI of 40 by itself or a BMI of 35 plus one or more adiposity-based chronic diseases. Those people should have had a consultation with the surgeon. And again, people at, on YouTube are going to roast us for this. They'll be like, "Just giving up, just you know, pushing the easy button." And it's like, <laughs> we're 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 none of the, none, nothing about this is easy. No, nothing about this whole change, and especially treating this from a public health standpoint, is easy. If it were, we would not have this current epidemic, all right. And the most important thing isn't about how hard or how virtuous or how you know. Or whether people pull themselves up by their bootstraps to get there. The more important thing is that we fix it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> From a public health standpoint, uh, that's the most important thing. And so we gotta, we got to do that. So. Yeah. Only thing I would add is to the first question where it was specifically asking, how long do you give lifestyle interventions to work regarding an obesity-related chronic disease? So meaning that they have not only obesity, they have the excess body fat, but they have a health-related oh, complication sure. from it. And so in that standpoint, in, in that situation, as you mentioned, based on those criteria, I'm offering this kind of treatment right away, yep. right off the bat. I don't see a reason to delay. Um, and to be clear, as I mentioned in my lecture, I get paid precisely $0 extra for prescribing any of these, <laughs> any of these treatments. It makes no impact on anything from my standpoint. But I just did a consultation with an individual this past week who had recently diagnosed with diabetes. Um, and there's some interesting aspects to this, to this uh, case. He, he was diagnosed with diabetes based on labs that he, was that he had done with his primary care doctor. Uh, he was drinking a little bit above uh, kind of the, the public health guidelines. He was smoking uh, some cigarettes. Um, he was resistance at, uh, doing some resistance training, but was not doing any aerobic training. And his diet was not the best. And then upon receiving that diagnosis, he promptly overhauled his diet lost 11 pounds by the time he talked to me, quit drinking, quit smoking. <laughs> he did all the multiple behavior changes that you were talking about. And he was interested in as aggressive of treatment as early as possible for this to put this diabetes into remission because he had heard on our diabetes podcast that if you do this treatment early and aggressive, uh, aggressively, that you can put diabetes effectively into remission, which is true. And the clinician who he was working with was basically saying, uh, take this dose of metformin, which is an often prescribed drug for uh, diabetes, and do lifestyle interventions, and was refusing to escalate treatment to anything more intense to facilitate um, you know, weight loss and improvement in his blood sugar and resolution of these health issues. So I provided the guidelines and said, hey, based on where you're at, you qualify for more intensive treatment. This is something that I would treat more aggressively, even though you're doing awesome with the lifestyle standpoint. Most people are not going to overhaul their diet. Oh yeah, and he started doing aerobic activity three times a week on top of his lifting. 
So all of this stuff is very uncommon for somebody to do after receiving these diagnoses, and he still wanted to attack it as hard as possible. And so that is something I'm fully on board with because, hey, I can start using these medications, put this into full-blown remission, and potentially you may be able to come off them in the future. That would be the definition of remission. You're able to have normal blood sugar response to a meal without needing any of these kind of medication treatments. And so I have no issue uh, uh, treating these things when somebody has an obesity-related chronic disease, meaning a complication of diabetes, if, uh, of, of obesity, excuse me. If somebody has excess body fat and they have no apparent health complications from it, then sure, it is not a crazy idea to let somebody try this kind of like lifestyle alone approach, particularly if that's what they want to do. Because yeah. a lot of people, again, come in with this like culturally baked in stigma against, I don't want medications because that's a, that's a crutch. I'm like, okay, I know where this is coming from. I've had this conversation before. We can keep working on this because these may become necessary at some point. But if you want to try the lifestyle approach up front in the setting of excess body fat without health-related complications, I'm cool with that. But once we have the excess body fat with health-related complications, I'm treating that much more aggressively or recommending treatment much more aggressively up front to get it under control. Because, hey, the earlier, just like with the blood cholesterol discussion, the earlier in life I can get this stuff under control, this benefit magnifies over the lifespan in terms of potential risk downstream. How much uh, you get paid by Big Pharma? Zero dollars. Uh-huh. Do you believe yeah. it? Yeah, that's like what somebody's getting cash in big <laughs> Okay. In addition to platform experience, what have been the most important experiences in your coaching development? Ooh. I think they have like three like major categories. One would be academic, second would be personal, third would be professional. So the academic stuff, gone, having gone through all the education that I've gone through allows uh, understanding of the scientific literature, its limitations, its benefits, how to interpret it, empirical evidence, all that other sort of stuff at a much higher level than somebody who doesn't have that training. And so people, we get this question all the time, like, how do I get better at reading scientific studies? And it's like, you have to go to school. And I'm not trying to silo like this information or like discourage people, but it's like you asked and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, like there's, to self-teach yourself, to, te- to self-teach the ability to like interpret, uh, uh, you know, apply uh, data with no formal training. It would be difficult. <laughs> To say the least. <laughs> yeah, so academic, huge thing. Two, personal development, just having gone through the process of you know, training, reaching you know, somewhere near my peak development, competing multiple times, having injuries, coming back from them, ha- having a lot of life stress and balancing training uh, with that you know, all, all gives me a lot more perspective. Uh, and then the professional part is super interesting because I don't, I don't think just coaching people in and of itself necessarily makes you a better coach, but coaching people who are much different than yourself as far as how they respond to training their own personal challenges or whatever, that's been probably the most helpful from, from in that uh, category, uh, mainly because I would otherwise just program people how I would program myself or the programs that I like or things that I like. And finding people that are substantially different than me, either they respond to different things than me, have different challenges than I do, and so I gotta work with those, uh, that stuff's been a lot more helpful as far as developing as a coach. Um, and so, I mean, you see a lot of people who compete or, you know, they did, did the, the running joke is I did my first meet and now I'm a powerlifting coach. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you have enough uh, coaching chops to actually offer a good product. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try or shouldn't coach, uh, but just knowing the sort of limitations of your own sort of uh, scope right now would be useful. But so that's for me, that's probably, probably the big three. Yeah, uh, I would only give I would give two, I suppose. One is going to be similar in that going through the training process is you, you 
can't get around that. You have to go through the training process yourself and uh, experience the ups and the downs and the setbacks and come back from the setbacks and all these sorts of things to be able to not only guide people through that, but also to empathize with them and to understand what they're going through. So I definitely know when somebody has a severe back tweak and maybe they were previously performing at a high level and now they're down to you know RDLing 75 pounds or something. Yeah, I know what that feels like and I can relate to them and have that kind of conversation and guide them back and provide the necessary reassurance. Um, and also celebrating the wins of knowing what it feels like when somebody you know, lifts that uh, all-time you know, plate milestone or something like that. I think that lets you connect with people kind of on a different level. Aside from that, I think going through, I agree, medical training, but more specifically than the evidence side, but more the communication skills mm -hmm. side. Um, this comes down to how we can talk to people and relate to people, um, both from a clinical standpoint, like this motivational interviewing stuff that Jordan was mentioning, you know, at the way back yesterday morning, you guys can, can think back to, <laughs> to that lecture. Um, those kind of skills, the ability to elicit the information you need and to reflect back in a helpful way to people and to ask the right questions and provide the right feedback and those kind of communication skills are probably by far, I think, the most valuable thing that I feel like I have uh, insofar as it you know, pertains to guiding people through the training process or the rehab process or uh, even when I see patients in the hospital who are going through you know, their most vulnerable time when you just diagnose them with some horrific life-limiting disease or something like that. Those kind of communication skills are, I think, overwhelmingly <laughs> yeah. the most useful, beneficial thing that I, that I have in my, my arsenal when, when working with people. Yeah, the motivation interviewing stuff is is very very unique to medical profession, like training for, to be in, in the medical profession. Uh, mainly because you can learn all of the techniques, but if you never get to apply them or use them and refine them across like, like lots and lots of different types of patients, lots of different types of patients, and how yeah. it fits your personality, it's like cool. Well, I read the book, but I'm not really sure what to do now. I'm like, yep, that's that's the problem. So yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, cool. People be like, so you, I just gotta go to med school to be the best coach? I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of a high standard. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And I would prefer most doctors to operate up to the level of training. I would just prefer them to be, uh, for more of them to recommend exercise to their patients. I mean, I don't know. There's no bit, there's not been a follow-up study that's like, oh yeah, no, no 20% of doctors are recommending exercise to their patients or resistance training to yeah, their patients. I don't think it's much better. I think it's worse, if anything. <laughs> it's just less time. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, okay, relating to mechanical tension, dosage, i.e. volume. I thought older individuals required or needed less volume in training, uh, but you were discussing the need for added volume, particularly in those that were anabolically resistant. Uh, yeah, you done heard wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is like a fundamental dis disagreement with this like minimum effective dose, kind of like let's take it easy on the, on the older individuals type thing. And we're not trying to victimize you know, anybody. If you're an older individual versus younger individual, I don't know that you need more or less volume. I expect both of you to respond about the same until proven otherwise. And if you're not responding to the training, then I think there's a problem either with the formulation of the training or the dose. And so if the intensity is correct for the adaptations we're selecting for, if the exercise selection is appropriate for your current preferences, trainability, adherence, all that sort of stuff, then I think the dose is wrong. And generally it's not too high unless you're suffering from like an overuse injury, you're reporting being fatigued all the time, you're, you know, just kind of constantly sore. If it's not none of, if it's none of those things, then I think you're underdosed. And uh, so if anything, I would expect an older individual to need more volume than a younger individual to see a response. But that's if they have anabolic resistance. If it's mm -hmm. a 60-year-old person, 55-year-old person, or people who come on our Facebook group who aren't familiar with our material, they're like, I'm 38, I'm an old person, I need less <laughs> training. We're like, 
38's old, oh boy. Like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I would expect most people, you know, you, you're, you're, the, the recommendations for initial training to look about the same across most different population demographics, and then you're gonna adjust from there based on the response. And so again, if people aren't cripplingly sore, super fatigued, reporting like overuse injuries or sort of new pain onset, you're thinking, all right, well, the dose isn't too high. It's probably, if anything, a little too low. As long as the formulation seems like something that they would, that they can do, their adherence is high. Um, anything else you want to put on there? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's maybe borderline hot take. <laughs> hot take? Okay, yeah, let's get, let's get controversial, Baraki. It's I been think, a minute. <laughs> I think this idea that older people require significantly less training volume uh, results from an observation of those who train people and their approach to training assumes that the only way to get stronger or to build muscle is for your training to be very, very, very hard. Oh, yeah. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah. The okay. infantile view of like training. Yes, that if it's not maximally hard, that it is not worthwhile or that it does not generate the adaptations you're looking for, right? And if you look at it through that lens, where in other words, if you're not taking it to RPE nine or 10, of course, folks who espouse this view disregard the idea of RPE altogether. But if it's not oh just shy of failure or like the hardest set you've ever done, that it's not worth your time, it does not generate strength or hypertrophy, which is verifiably false yes. based on the actual research on this topic. And I would argue, if you want to disregard research and just look at empirical experience, my own training, I haven't pulled anything over RPE 6 in my volume but I, work. Not even just you, just like older people. people, we, this, older people we, we do this all the time with people. Yeah. But the idea that if the only valuable training is that which is very, very, very hard, right? If you take that assumption, then everybody requires less volume <laughs> because nobody can tolerate that much volume if all the training is that hard, right? I've been there. I did training programs where all my sets, I had to take 15 minutes of rest between sets. I had to get ridiculously hyped up. I had to have the right song on. I had to hyperventilate before my sets. And I would still go and barely get out the last rep of the set, right? That's happened to both of us. So I think that it rests on a flawed assumption, right? If we grant the you know, reality of this based on the evidence and our experience as well, that you can gain significant strength and you can get hypertrophy staying not just one rep, but multiple, sh multiple reps shy of failure, then all of a sudden this idea that you can't tolerate that much volume goes out the window, yeah. right? You can tolerate more work if it's not all maximally difficult. And that's what we observe across the age spectrum in the population that we work with. Um, and so I really, it frustrates me, this kind of narrative around older folks being, you know, much, much, much more fragile, right? Because if you take them to RPE 10, if they're doing limit sets, then yes. But at the same time, if I took a 20-year-old to limit sets week in and week out, yeah, it doesn't take very long before they start feeling bad. And I'd say, oh, maybe you're, you know, volume intolerant or volume sensitive or something like that. And you really need means. to back off. And, I don't know what yeah, that means. It, does, it's, it's incoherent. Are you angry? A little bit. Are you mad, bro? A little bit. Because, it, again, it's like older folks are those who stand to benefit the, the most, most yeah. from doing more. And yeah. yet we're telling them you're fragile and you shouldn't be doing very much. Right? It's that idea of, like, you can go real hard for, like, this one set and then just, like, take it easy the rest of the time. Which is not the reality. It's not the message that we're trying to promote to anybody. Yeah. So if you 
understand the idea that you can gain productive adaptations across a wide range of loading intensities. Yes. You can stay multiple reps shy of failure yes. and get adaptations, right? Then you can do plenty of sets and that's all good, right? Yep. And then when, again, these studies specific to anabolic resistance get done, where we see muscle protein synthesis responses get blunted with fewer sets and you can normalize their muscle protein synthesis response if you just do a couple more sets, right? Especially if those sets are a little bit shy of failure, it's no problem to do a couple more sets and people can adapt to that. It doesn't mean we take a beginner who is 88 years old and has never trained before and say, yeah, you're gonna do six sets of five at like 70% of your one RM today. Well, single at eight first to get a, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but it means that we don't set this arbitrary artificial barrier up front to them and say, you're never gonna be able to do more than like two sets of three in your training or something like that, right? We can work you up, you can adapt, right? Maybe the pace of adaptation is different than somebody who is at a different life stage or something like that, or doesn't have these medical conditions, but you can adapt. Oh. Right, and working them up over time. I'm just triggered on the inside from the underdosed training. It's like you're showing up to the gym and you're not doing enough work to get better, but it's still really hard, so you can't really do more. Yeah. And you feel like you're putting in the work. It's like, it's just frustrating. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately, what also adds to this frustration is I often end up consulting with many of these people, not necessarily so many in the older demographic, but even guys in their 30s or 40s who were told that they had to go maximally hard all the time and then they start to feel terrible, and then they go and they get their testosterone level checked, and of course it's not normal, right? Because they're in this bizarre state of like simultaneously over and under training, whatever that, whatever. They're doing stuff that's too hard but not enough to adapt, yeah, yeah. right? They just feel bad, not sleeping well, mood's down, testosterone's low, and they're like, oh, I just guess I just need testosterone. It's like, no, you just needed to train better. Need, yeah, better training. More program. intelligent training approach, right? I deal, I deal with this all the time. I do these consults yeah, multiple times a month. Well, the idea that harder is better, yeah. And if, and, and, and that has like no upper bound and it's like, that's not necessarily the case. If we're just talking about strength, then it needs to be hard enough, but no harder. And you need to do more of that stuff as much as possible. Yeah. And so if it's maximally hard, you can't do enough of it for it to matter. And the infinitesimal like improvement that you would get in fitness is massively outweighed by the fatigue. I had a discussion on this topic on my uh, platform with the overhead uh, press that we did, where basically the concept is, let's say we take the RPE, the number of reps in reserve, you go from an RPE 7 to 8 to 9 to 10. The marginal increase in training stimulus that you get out of that approaches a flat line. Yeah. Right? In other words, you're not getting that much more benefit, say you go from 8 to 9 to 10 on this set from a strength development or hypertrophy development standpoint. But the fatigue cost that you get from that is like exponential. Yep. Right? It skyrockets from eight to nine to 10. I could do singles at eight every week, twice a week, and have no problems. But then, as Jordan said during that lecture, that one week, I went full send. I went to full RPE 10, and my deadlift performance went down by 150 pounds <laughs> and was down there for multiple weeks before I got back yep. to normal. And that was just the difference between an eight to 10 RPE. And I'm like, I wasn't under any illusions that I got better stimulus from that effort. That was just fun. Right? Sure. No, no regrets, it was worth it. No but again, that stimulus difference that you get flat lines and the fatigue costs skyrockets. And calling that like somebody, refer, being in that situation and saying, oh, I guess I can't do any training volume. That's not the correct interpretation. Would you put grandma on the barbell medicine beginner prescription? I don't see why not. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I would too, obviously. Her weights are gonna be artificially, not artificially, but they're necessarily gonna start quite low based on, you know, 
her status. Of course, she is post-mortem at the moment, but oh, we'll set man. that aside. Come on, man. <laughs> no dead grandma jokes. It's okay. All right. Last question. Let's assume we've been training one side differently due to a shoulder injury. Hypothetically speaking. Asking for a friend. <laughs> Other than external load, how else might programming need to differ between limbs? Do we expect the hypertrophy signal to the injured side to be similar or for the injured side to at least not lose size? Are you confident that the crosstalk phenomena will continue to avoid strength and hypertrophy discrepancies over a longer recovery time? It's an interesting question. So if you don't know anything about me, if you're like new to barbell medicine, somehow ended up in the seminar by, seminar by accident, like I appreciate you like playing along the whole time, that's been great. Uh, about five weeks ago now, I fell off my motorcycle and dislocated my right shoulder. Uh, I reduced it in the field. That was less fun than it sounds like. Um, and since then, I've been getting better. Uh, for the first few days afterwards, I couldn't even put on a shirt. So like literally could not move my arm enough to like put a t-shirt on. So I was like button down king. Uh, and then this last week I've benched, uh, the most I benched was 170 kilos, so 375. So yeah, it took me, I, it was a week till I benched 30 kilos and then yeah, subsequently in the following four weeks I've added 300 pounds to my bench press. Weird trick, man. One weird trick, yeah, yeah. Bench, bench a lot of weight, dislocate your shoulder and then <laughs> recover from that. Um, so how I trained in the beginning, um, I think four days after this happened, I went to a commercial gym. Um, so they had more dumbbells and machines. And what I would do on my good side, my left side, I would do a set of uh, either, if the rep scheme was 12s or 15s or 10s or whatever it was, I would do that normally to the correct RPE, which was RPE eight at the time. And then I would do the same rep scheme um, on the right side, but that would be my limited basically by pain. So the biggest discrepancy I ever got to, I was doing uh, one arm dumbbell bench presses and I was using 150 on my left arm and I was using uh, 25s on my right arm. Um, and that was kind of funky because you pick one 150 and kind of <laughs> hold it around. And it was weird because I would like kick it back and I'd be like, ah, my right shoulder hurts just by holding this thing. But I could press it and then I would pick up the 25 pound weight <laughs> and like in shame walk it over to the bench and bench it. Um, and so this crosstalk phenomenon is that if you have one limb, most of this data comes from limbs that have been isolated. Either they cast people who have not fractured or injured a limb, but they just cast healthy individuals. Uh, they otherwise limit the movement they have with one limb. And they exercise the other limb. There's crosstalk in both uh, strength and some like size preservation. Mostly size preservation. Um, that's where most of the data resides. Basically, you get a systemic or body-wide sort of signal for hypertrophy and it also seems to affect obviously the other limb. So you lose less size due to immobilization than you'd otherwise uh, suspect. Um, and strength-wise, you tend to see a little bit less, but again, the data isn't as strong. As far as what I experienced, I haven't experienced any strength loss as far as I can tell, because right now my strength levels are limited mainly by discomfort. That said, I'm not sure if it's due to what I've done in the interim other, uh, uh, compared to what is the normal rate of strength decay for me because my best bench press is 440, right? And so all I've benched in the interim is 374. So I'm still well below that 440. Um, and I don't notice that the bar doesn't go up crooked on one side, for example, or doesn't feel harder on my right side, but it's still submaximal. So I can't speak to, do I think that it's working uh, really, really well. It just gave me a way to train. And uh, more importantly was range that injured side. So I was getting used to ranges of motion that I used in not only training, but also day-to-day -day life. So I would do seated dumbbell press. I remember the first day I just picked up the 12-pound dumbbell, a 
pound dumbbell and I couldn't press it all the way overhead. And I was like, I think this is it. <laughs> is there an eight pound dumbbell? Like what, do we have anything this light? And so I actually picked a five pound plate, like a flat plate and I was pressing just the plate. And I'm like, this is what I'm in resolve to. But the, the idea, <laughs> the benefit there wasn't the load, it was ranging that joint. So other things I've had to do, um, I was unable to tolerate a bar on my back just actually pressing on my shoulder. Safety squat bar worked a little bit, except for the press, when it got heavy enough, I uh, couldn't really tolerate that. So what I had to do is make the exercise challenging enough, uh, uh, but it kept the load light enough simultaneously. So I had to, what I did with the safety squat bar is I started doing 12s with a three second tempo eccentric. And effectively that would limit the load. I couldn't squat more than 400 pounds like that. Uh, which was good because that was, it didn't hurt my shoulder. Oh, or I would use the belt squat, for example, which didn't load my shoulder at all. And then now, I mean, on Monday, I high bar squatted 538 for a triple at, you know, RP7, which is approaching my, maybe my best triple high bar. And at some point I'll low bar again and, I'll, you know, I'll be strong at some point, we hope. Um, other things I've had to do, I couldn't tolerate, I couldn't deadlift 70 kilos the first time I tried to deadlift because the traction uh, was a problem. So I had no good way to actually deadlift anything uh, at all uh, with my right side. So I was doing single leg deadlifts, but I also did a lot of leg press and hack squats and other stuff, and that has decent transference. Uh, and I pulled, what, six, uh, 650 for a triple? Mm -hmm. So less than a month Pretty out. Good. Not bad. I mean, it's getting close. Again, probably 15 pounds off my best triple. So I think things are improving. Uh, and the way I would sum this up for folks is that, yeah, if you get injured and it limits your ability to train how you want to train, find ways uh, to train the unaffected side as normally as possible. Uh, sometimes you gotta get creative and then still range the other side. Uh, uh, use light weights if you have to, change the exercise variations if you have to. Um, I'll only be able to find out if I've lo what I've lost until I have no more discomfort. Um, but I don't, I, on the other hand, if I can only get it back up to a 430 pound bench, like do I think that that's more due to the injury or just like me not being as strong? I don't know. Yeah. I think there's some, even in, even in uh, the context of like bilateral quote unquote normal training, there's pretty good evidence for the idea that you can drop from a very well-trained state, you can drop training volume substantially down yeah. to like, I think like a ninth or something like that was what was that particular study of the training volume that they were doing beforehand. And that can maintain strength for actually yeah. like a pretty good amount of time. And so, you know, I know that a component of this question was like, how long do you think that you can keep going like this? For example, if you're just training one side, I think a while, oh, honestly. Yeah. Um, particularly if he's staying active in a bunch of other ways. Yeah, I wouldn't expect any atrophy to occur as long, unless I was under bed rest or otherwise ill or on a low protein diet yeah. or somehow immobilized and was unable to do any activity. I wouldn't expect any atrophy. Or at, least, or at least any like grossly detectable atrophy if somebody's looking at your arms from outside. <laughs> well, yeah, but even if it did happen, so, so what tends to happen even when you put people on bed rest, yeah, sometimes the muscle cross-sectional area decreases, but the actual like components that are responsible for maintaining muscle size persist. And so as soon as this person is back active again, their muscle swells up. Yeah. So what muscle memory is mostly due to is effectively these muscle cells called myonuclei, they maintain a particular area of your muscle mass. And when you have this prolonged period of disuse, they go, guess we'll just pack up shop and go home. But they stay there in your muscle. And so when they finally start being active again, they're like, cool, gang's back in town, let's grow. And your muscle swells back up. 
Um, so I would have expected if any loss uh, from being, if I was immobilized for, for real, uh, that it would return within weeks. Yeah. But because I'm not on bed rest, I'm not otherwise ill, I'm gonna have big arms. And no concerns about the asymmetries here. Oh, I mean, I'm asymmetrical since 85. Yeah, I don't, yeah. it's part of my charm. <laughs> All right, that's it, that's it. All right, that's a wrap on episode 173. Again, that is part two of our latest question and answer session uh, from our Philadelphia two-day seminar that Austin and I did at Warhorse Barbell Club. Big shout out to them for hosting us, Tom Capitelli for recording this Q&A. For part one, check out the link in the description below. Before you go anywhere though, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya.